Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touched by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lovato. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And to always remember, You are not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a son. His name is Michael Stewart. In 2015, Michael lost his father figure, Steve Tarpinian, to suicide. Michael felt so bad that Steve never realized the impact he had on others, including himself, and that he positively touched so many people's lives. Three years later, while still coming to term with Steve's death and working through his own addiction issues, Michael suffered another tragic loss. On Michael's 61st day of sobriety, Michael's father, Mike, took his own life. Michael's advice to anyone who is suffering is to appreciate every moment you have with those you love and to keep them close. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now, Let's hear from Michael and Nicole. I am here today with Mike Stewart, a man who has been deeply affected by suicide. And before we get going on that, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your background. So first of all, Mike, thank you for sharing your story today. Well, thank you for having me, Nicole. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, this is a tough topic. Um, And it's really hit you hard in your life. Mm -hmm. Before we get into it, I really think we should start with learning more about your background. Maybe a good place to start is with your first love, triathlon. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, uh, triathlons. I, I, um, I think I attended my first triathlon when I was like three or four days old out in Montauk. Um, My dad did them my entire childhood. So Growing up, I was literally born on a Tuesday, and they asked the doctors if I can go to a triathlon that Sunday, <clears throat> and um, they said yes. So to say I was born into it would be an understatement. Um, but yeah, so I grew up going to all those races, and by the time I was five or six, I was already asking my father um, when I could actually do my first race. So then organically, that led to some 5Ks, and then I think I was nine years old when I did my first full swim bike run. Oh my gosh, your dad was a big influence in that athletic side of your life huh yeah he really carved it out and it's funny him and Steve Tarpinian um it's like 
it's my dad was my real father, but Steve was for all intended purposes, my, uh, my second father when I was growing up. So the two of them really carved out um, what I ended up doing in my adolescence with athletics. So I take it your dad knew Steve. <laughs> so yes. It's, so to go back even further, Jean Milano, Steve's uh, widow, went to high school with my father. So they knew each other back from the 1970s. They both went to Seaford High School. And then in the early 90s is when my dad connected with Steve. Um, and then it just so happens when my dad met Gene, they remembered each other from high school. So Gene and my father go way back to the 70s. And Steve and my dad connected when he founded Team Total Training in the 90s. And I believe my dad was one of the founding members of the team. Wow. That is like, it's so crazy to go back and see all those connections. You know, mm -hmm. what was your family life like? Was it a super supportive environment? Um, so yeah, we have a very tight knit family growing up. It was me, my mom, my dad, and then I have a brother that's two and a half years younger than me. Um, but yeah, we were, we were a big sports family growing up. So we did during the summer, we were doing triathlons almost every weekend, going out to Montauk, out to the Hamptons. Um, me and my brother played all the sports, soccer, hockey, everything you can imagine. Um, and we were just very close. It's, uh, it's funny. My parents were a little bit older when they had my brother and I, so they were kind of always like the oldest parents in the class. And because of that, I feel like they were like a little more laid back than most parents. So we had a lot of fun uh, growing up. It was a fun household. <laughs> um, yeah, everyone really said what they wanted, but we all got along well. It was really nice. So you felt like um, there was good open communication in your family? Yeah, there was, it was really, it was as open as it could be. It's funny because my dad has a, had a history of alcoholism. So he, he stopped drinking before I was ever um, born, but I kind of grew up in that um, AA framework with him going to a meeting every day and kind of just from a young age being exposed to that, that part of mental health in terms of the addiction. And then also just being aware that my dad had a history of depression and was on antidepressants and had had seen a therapist in the past. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's kind of something that I was cognizant of at, at a young age, the, the whole mental health side of it too. Yeah. You know, the, the 12 step programs are, can be very powerful, not only for the person attending, but have these <laughs> ripple effects of yeah, you exactly. know, positive patterns to instill in their kids. Cause I, I truly believe communication is the number one, um, way that we can make this world a better place, you know, having positive communication yep. and do things like prevent suicides and help with mental health issues. Because if we don't talk about them, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, like I said, I think we've come a long way the past few years, but I mean, it's, it's, it's taken a while that, that stigma is still there. So. Yeah, Whatever it definitely is. It definitely is. So what we're doing today is just opening more conversations is try to knock that stigma on its ass, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, you know, you wrote a beautiful letter to Steve um, prior to his death in, I think mm -hmm. it was 2012. So you were pretty yep. young, maybe still in high school at that time. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds like you had some inner turmoil, you know, earlier on. So maybe you can talk mm -hmm. about what that, what that letter meant. So, yeah, so that letter came to be, it was my, it was a freshman year writing assignment in college. And um, I believe it was around Thanksgiving. So it's funny from almost eight years ago at this point. Um, and we had to write about somebody that we were thankful 
for. And at the time I was 18. So a little bit of backstory between Steve and I, me and Steve's relationship peaked from when I was about 10 years old up until when I was 17. I was basically like that little annoying kid that would be tagging along with him everywhere he went. And it's funny because we lived around the block from each other in Wontaw. So it's literally, I could walk to his house and he would take me to the swim practice. But so, yeah, so from age 10 on me and Steve were like almost inseparable. I, I, I wanted to do anything that Steve did. And it's funny, Steve, to me, he, he was such an inspiration. And it's like every, the way he acted, I, I wasn't aware that he had any form of mental illness at that time when I was dealing with him as a child, but he was like larger than life to me. He was this man. It's like everything that Steve did, I wanted to be. It's like, even to a point where I, I wanted to um, work in triathlons and get involved with his uh, event power and so on. But what happened with me was, unfortunately, I, I, I kind of was pushed a little too hard when I was too young. So like, as our relationship flourished, Steve and I, it was always kind of bounded by triathlon, unfortunately. And so when I was 15, 16 years old, I kind of, um, I just, I lost that passion for it, you know? And I started to get involved with some drugs and alcohol for the first time, which um, my entire childhood, I was, I was so against it because of the program that I grew up in. Um, so I went from being completely anti everything to once I try, I'm like, oh shit. And it was to say shit hit the fan was an understatement. So at that point I was like 16 and I remember going to Steve's house and being like, Steve, like, I'm not going to swim in college. Like, I don't, I don't know if this is what I want to like do anymore moving forward. And I'll, I'll never forget having that conversation. And it was me, my mom and dad and Steve. And, and it was like a big deal at the time because everybody was under the impression I was going to go swim on scholarship and this, that, the other. But I, I, I was completely burnt out. I, I, between getting pushed too hard with the triathlons and the drug and alcohol use, I, I just imploded. And Steve at that, during that conversation was completely understanding. He was like, no, do what you need to do. Like I completely understand. My dad though, at the time, didn't talk to me for a week, was so upset about the whole thing. Um, but at that point that I was like 16. And at, once I kind of told Steve that it's kind of like, it's not that our relationship died. It's like, there was the reason that we always had that bonded us together it kind of just disappeared on me and I got more heavily involved in the stuff I shouldn't have been doing as uh, my last couple of years of high school and then freshman year in college. Um, and that's kind of where I got to that point when I was 18 and I wrote the piece that I wrote. So that's kind of how I ended up there and writing that piece. But um, well, I really appreciate you sharing that because it's tough at the same time. It's so normal. Like what's kind of not normal is that you were such an intense athlete as, as a really young child, you know, at mm -hmm. 10 to 16, you know, that's, that's actually, um, what maybe you'd call above average or, you know what I mean? Like here you are on the, on the athlete track, you were just on it too early. And, um, and so I don't fault you for the burnout or anything. I mean, we can't, control these things as those feelings come up. Um, actually, I think that the fact that you sat down and had that conversation with three, the three most important adults in your life, what kind of pressure you must have felt that had to feel very intense. Yeah, no, and it, it was, it was horrible at the time because like I was about to start my college search and I had, I was visiting 
coaches I was having like recruiting meetings and I was like, I was going through all the motions knowing deep down, it's not something that I wanted to do. Um, I was just doing it to make my dad. And I guess at the time I thought Steve happy. Um, but yeah, no, it took a lot. And I, I think I had talked to my mom beforehand that I, what I was going to say. And um, I knew that I knew how my dad was going to react. So yeah, at the time it was a lot, but at, at the end of the day, everything happens for a reason. So I'm not well, gonna. Yeah. And I mean, I think it probably was a, a stepping stone that gave you some strength and confidence, even though you were experimenting with you know, drugs and alcohol, like that's not something that anybody wants their kid to do, but that is our world today, yeah. you know? So I don't think that it's that abnormal, but looking back, mm-hmm. what would you have done differently? Um, in terms of, uh, that conversation and not doing triathlons or anymore. Yeah. And even like you're getting into the, the wrong stuff at that age. I, and- I think it was a, that's a, it's a good question. I don't, I don't really know because it's one of those things I was so anti drugs and alcohol because of the environment I grew up in. So I almost think it was a matter of time between trying it and then already having that addictive personality that like it kind of just exploded. And it went from being this thing that I was so anti. And then once I tried it, I'm like, what's so bad about this? That like, it literally took a month of me using it was weed was my big thing. Uh, took a month of me like smoking pot like regularly to like it, that was it it was like by, by that point I I was done I didn't want anything to do with triathlons so it directly impacted my motivation and what I wanted to do so I don't know would I could I have if I didn't start smoking and drinking like I did could I have still swam in college and become an accountant like I did yeah but it didn't happen so if I could if I could go back I, I think I uh I don't know. I, I feel like I would have been more open with my dad about the substance stuff because I was so scared to let them know that I was ever starting to drink or smoke because of that stigma, because he was so anti it that by the time he kind of figured out what was going on, it was, it was too late. There was no stopping me. I was off the deep end already. That's a really good, important message to put out there right now to anybody who has high school age kids. Like, mm-hmm. what could your parents have done? Or if you had a kid right now or in the future, what would you just sit them down and open a conversation? Like, how could they really feel safe? Because I, I can imagine when I was young, if my parents would have asked me, I would have denied, denied, denied. There's no way I would have had like an open conversation with them. I think so just from I'm not a parent yet just from a child standpoint and from my perspective I think it's important to not like whether your whether your opinion's one way or the other not to really force it upon a child because childs are so uh, children are so malleable that they're going to listen to whatever they hear from their parents so in my mind growing up I was this AA drinking smoke drinking is bad it's like oh I'd, you'll never see me drink because of how I was so I had built up in my mind that drinking was this end all be all horrible thing. So I didn't want anything to do with it. And it was probably fine, like growing up. But then once I finally got to become of age where I could drink and make my own decisions, it, it kind of had a negative effect on me at that point, because it was kind of like I had built it up to this thing. And then I realized it wasn't that bad. And then it was kind of like the snowball effect. Once I got going a little bit, it kind of all just went out of control. Um, I can relate. Definitely. I have been sober for almost 14 years now. Oh, wow. So, you know, these are, these are things that we all face. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I really related to was the idea of having 
you said you had an addictive personality, mm-hmm. you know, and tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I, I knew, I knew based off just the percentages and like when your father is an alcoholic, you're 50% more likely to, have, to become one. Um, so I, I was aware of that, but then uh, it's everything I do. It's just when I, when I drink, I, I like drinking a lot. I can't stop. When I smoke, I smoke a lot. And then it's also with gambling. It's, it's kind of just like, I don't know if I was born with it or if it was developed in the environment that I grew up in, because I think my dad was like that with his um, drinking when he was younger. And then my mom is also kind of like that with the gambling. So I think it was a kind of a perfect storm between my genetic history and my upbringing that resulted in me having this ferociously addictive personality, which it's not always the worst thing. Like if you get addicted to like something good, like triathlons, for example, it's like I was ranked ninth in, ninth in the country when I was 15 years old at triathlon. So it was good at that. But then once I got into the wrong things, it really started to become a problem. You were too good at those. <laughs> exactly. I went, it's like everything. It's, well, no matter what I choose, I'm good at it. And I just, I made there's a long so, period of time. I was constantly making those bad choices. Yes. Yes. Well, choice is a big question mark because sometimes I think depending on how predisposed we may be choice sometimes doesn't come into play. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. going to happen or it's not. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, with, in my case with that, it's like, I, I didn't, I didn't choose to have an alcoholic father. I didn't choose to watch my mom go to the casino all the time. It's like, those were kind of just what I was dealt with. Um, but you have what you're dealt with. And then you also have like once you're of age, like what you can control. So now I'm kind of at the portion of my life where I'm, I'm going through that. I'm trying to figure out what I can and can't control. And that's where choice actually comes into play. more. Yeah, you're right. Well, let's talk about what you're dealt with. Um, you mm-hmm. have mentioned that you have been through a mental health journey and mm-hmm you know, having this sort of self-defined addictive personality, I'm just wondering how those two play together and what your journey has looked like. So I just kind of, I'll say my, my journey with the addiction and like mental health, it really, I guess, I don't know, growing up, I kind of was always like an anxious, nervous child, but I always had triathlons were always my outlet, you know, so working out and doing that kind of thing. Um, but then once I started to get into smoking pot and drinking, it's like, I completely stopped working out and my outlet just, um, just became that. And it's like, those were the only two things that I would always turn to. Um, so that was kind of 16 is when I started using. And so, um, instead of having a healthy outlet to deal with my anxiety and all that stuff, it immediately became an unhealthy one. So I went away to college, Marist College in 2012, and that's kind of where my using, mostly smoking pot and drinking, came to a, uh, I, I guess, peaked. Um, I, I, I had no self-control, basically. So I continued to use all throughout college. So that was 2012 to uh, 2015. And throughout this whole, that whole period, 2012, 2013, 2014, I had very minimal contact with Steve. I, I, I barely talked to him at all. Um, and like I said, it was, it was, I wasn't doing triathlons. I was already dealing with my own stuff. And more than anything, I was embarrassed. I, I, this man that I had looked up to and cherished, I, I didn't want to admit to him that I had literally become a fucking, I'm sorry, I had become a, um, 
basically a drug. I don't want to admit it. It was, I was a drug addict. I, I just, I, I, I was so consumed in everything. Um, so then it was my, what was it? It was my junior year and I was, I was in the middle of it. So I, I had actually just had a bunch of edibles and stuff. And I got a phone call. I look at my phone and it was Steve, Steve Tarpinian calling me. And I was as high as a kite. And I was like, oh my God. But I, I never, I like, always liked answering his call. So he called me and he was like, Mike, like you, because I think I, I texted him like a couple weeks before, like Steve, like I want to get back into it this summer. Like, let's get it going again. And so he called me, he's like, Mike, like, you're going to be, you want to do it this summer? And I'm like, like, oh, like, and I was out of it. So I kind of just like, yes, him to death. And then I, I basically, I, I literally told him like, Steve, like, I'm about to go to class. Like, I can't talk right now. Uh, let me call you back. Um, so that happened. And that was my junior year. I didn't think much of it. And then um, two weeks later, or a week, or I think no, it was actually a week later, I had went home for a break and I was at my friend's house. And my mom had called me and she's like, Michael, Steve died. And I'm like, the first thing I said, and I, I don't know why I said it. I'm like, did he kill himself? Just the first, first words uttered out of my mouth. And at the time we didn't know. And she's like, oh, I don't know. Um, so like, like I was at that point in my life, I was, I was literally at my friend's house getting high and I, I just went outside and I sat on the front lawn and started crying. I didn't know how to react. And it was funny. It was kind of like this whole thing came full circle from with our relationship. It's like when I stopped and I had that meeting with him to the phone call, seeing if I was going to get back into it to a week later, this, I never called him back and I never got that chance to say goodbye to him. So that's kind of like up until that point, that was 2015. So that, that happened with Steve and I was just like, I didn't know what to do because I, I already felt guilty enough that I wasn't in contact with him. And they're, I don't know. It was, it was just a lot at the time. It is a lot. It's definitely a lot. Um, I'm definitely emotional just hearing your story, you know? Yeah, no. So mm. that happened. And then I, I went to the wake and everything, but I, I, I was a shell of myself. I, I, I was seeing all these people that I hadn't seen in six, seven years. And again, it was this, this overwhelming embarrassment that I had that of what I'd become. It's like, I didn't want to face these people. So I went to the wake, I sat in the back row and then I went right to my car after I didn't, I didn't even talk to anybody. And Jean wasn't there either. She was dealing with what she was dealing with, with the family and whatnot. But that's something that if I could go back, I would, I, I wish I could have handled that better and mourned the process better because I, I didn't, I, I just like, I remember sitting in that car and I'm just like, all I want to do is I want to go home. I, I want to be here. I can't, I can't interact with these people. Um, so it's kind of like it happened. You knew it happened. You went through the motions and then you just shut it away. I, I, I put it in my pocket and it was out of sight, out of mind. And at the time, like I said, it was, it was 2015. I was a junior in college. I, between, what I, between what I was going through with my own personal issues and then literally trying to get an accounting degree and start my career as a public accountant, it was like, it was an over, it was an overwhelming point in my life. And it's unfortunate that Steve, unfortunately, just, just fell by the wayside. I, I never mourned it. And it's like, I was already not dealing with them a lot to begin with. So it's, it was like out of sight, out of mind. And I was away too. So it's not, I was away at college. So I wasn't around anybody. Um, but have yeah. You, have you ever considered that that last little bit of communication with him was about the most positive thing that could have happened between you and him at the end? 
Um, no, it's, it's really funny. No, in therapy, I've talked about this with my therapist. I originally, I had the complete opposite of that opinion. I, I thought I'm like, Oh my God, like, what if, if I had called him back and what, what could have been, what could have been differently? Maybe there's a chance he wouldn't have done it, but I've learned over time that that's, it's, that's not the proper way. It's not the healthy way to think about it. Um, but no, so for, for, to get back to your question, no, I, I honestly never thought about that, but it, it could have been. But I think from talking to Gene after the fact, I think he was making a lot of those phone calls at the time, just reaching out and just looking for something. And I think in my case, he was kind of looking back to go to like when our, our relationship peaked, when it was just the two of us just going to swim practice or the park. And it, I don't know, it's, it was, um, we had such good times together, but unfortunately people grow up and it's, I'm not going to sit here and blame myself for it. There was a time in my life where I did, but um, I've moved past that. So I try to just remember the good times with Steve. What do you want to say to Steve now? Um, thank you. Thank you. And um, I wish I knew what you were going through or what he was going through. So I could have been more of a help at the time. Um, yeah, just thank you more than anything. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. He never, he never realized the impact he had on others. And if only we could have broken through that wall and if he could have realized the amount of people he touched, it could have been different. But it's like hindsight is twenty twenty. It's like, like me, there's probably so many people that had no idea that Steve was going through what he was going through. Um, so... Yeah. Like I said, hopefully this, hopefully what we're doing helps and save, help somebody else, you know? Yeah. I mean, that is definitely the goal. Part of, um, part of this is the, the guilt that we feel as people left behind the idea that we could have done something to help them, but then also tied up in that is, you know, this question of discussing suicide and being able to communicate about it because so many people um, find it, they, they feel that suicide is like shameful. You know, they want to hide it. They don't want to tell people that someone they loved did that. Did you find that when you went in the car that day after the wake, you just closed it off? It wasn't even an issue about talking about suicide. It was just that you couldn't face it. So at that point, at that given point in my life, it, it didn't have as much to do with suicide as it did. Um, I, th I think it just had more to do with me just not being able to face the, the music, the music that I needed to face at the time. Um, it was, it wasn't as much a suicide thing. Like the suicide, obviously I, I wish I knew, I, I still haven't been able to find the answer to that question. Why, why that was the first thing out of my mouth after my mom had told me that, because like I said, I didn't know that he was, I didn't know, I guess on the surface, what he was going through, but there had to have been something in my subconscious that led me to believe that he, he was dealing with something because I wouldn't have just blurted that out. Like I did. So Steve's is not the only suicide that has touched you. Yep. Can we talk about your dad? Yeah. So I'll, uh, let me, I'll continue the story and I'll, I'll tie my dad into it. So that, okay. what year was it? 2015 when Steve had passed? Yes. April 2015. Mm -hmm. 
So that, that happened in 2015. And like I said, I kind of shut that out. Um, I was a junior at the time. I had an internship coming up with a big, a big four accounting firm. So I did that internship. I got a job offer for when I was going to graduate in May 2016. Um, and again, like this is like, I thought this was all good at the time. Oh, public accounting internship, whatever. But like th throughout this whole course, I was still using, I was still severely in a horrible cycle. Um, so I ended up getting the job and moved to Connecticut, uh, whatever. And I was absolutely miserable. I, I literally, I, I couldn't have been more unhappy. I was still using, I, I hated the job. I was very anxious in my own right. And I started to develop my own uh, I was depressed. I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was developing a severe bout of depression. So it, it, it was um, September 2017 was uh, it's kind of when I reached my, my breaking point when I knew I'm like, I can't continue with this job any forward. I'm moving forward. Um, and I was like, I was starting to get some weird ass thoughts. Like I was literally driving to work and I would be like, oh, like what would happen if I drove on the incoming traffic? And the second I started to fucking think that I'm like, there is a problem. So I, I had already been talking to a therapist, but I, I'm like, I'm like, I think I need like more, I, I need something more intensive than this. So at that point, it was December of 2017. I, I checked myself into a, a, a facility. And so I, it was a 30 day inpatient treatment and it was 30 day outpatient. Um, and it was the best experience I ever had. I, I made so many friends, I, I got sober. I, I was like, I was genuinely happy. And it's funny. I, and it was like, I was, I was like a little, it's like, I don't know. I was able to help people in the way that I hadn't been able to help people. And it's like, it's funny because my dad was like that with AA, he was a sponsor, but I digress anyway. So I did 30 days in treatment, 30 days, um, 30 days in house and then 30 days outpatient. On the sixty on the sixtieth day, I drove back to Wontaw, but where my family lives. And so the last week I was in treatment, I've been talking. I was talking to my dad, and he's like, "Mike, I want to let you know, like, I he had gotten the flu, so he wasn't able to work out. Um, but he had entered. He's like, Mike, like I'm really not in a good state of mind. Like I'm I'm depressed. Um, and I'm like, oh, and it was like a role reversal. I'm like, Dad, I'm like, you're gonna be fine. You'll get through this. I'm like, once you're not sick anymore, this, that, the other, and um. So I got home that night. It was literally my 60th day sober. I think I had my 60 day coin. I saw my dad and I'm like, oh, geez, he was a shell of himself. He was like a nervous wreck. Like could barely talk to him. I'm like, dad, what's wrong? So I spent that night with him, woke up the next day. Um, I had some errands to run. I'm like, dad, like you want to come run some errands with me? He's like, oh no, I'm going to church. I'm going to church or whatever. Um, he doesn't come home for dinner. I go to his five o'clock AA meeting. He wasn't there. And then I get back from the AA meeting and I have two detectives in front of my house. Um, and they told me that my dad had jumped in front of a train earlier that day. Um, so it was my six, it was my 61st day sober. And on my 61st day sober, I lost my father to suicide, who was also my biggest um, advocate with my addiction problems at the time too because I was 60 days sober and it's like our relationship was flourishing in that regard because he was, I, I finally could talk to him about that stuff in the way he wanted to. And yeah. And then, and then it all so, I am so, so sorry. This is uh it's, it's unthinkable. Like I can't put myself in your shoes. even. Yeah. And then, um, 
it was horrible. And then at that point I was getting pressure from my old job. I had already missed like a month and a half and they wanted me back. So I literally, after my dad died, I, I only took in a five days off. Then. And I was my first day back at the office. I worked from 9 a.m. until 11.30 p.m. And that was the day that I realized I'm like, I'm not public accounting. Nope, I'm not doing this. So I, I didn't quit that day, but I, I, I set myself up to be to not do that anymore. And now it's like this three years later, I, I couldn't be happier at the job I'm at. But at the time, it was a lot. Did you, when your dad died, did mm-hmm. you tuck it in your pocket? No, I didn't because I, I was a lot more being sober at the time. I was a, I was much more resilient um, than I had been and then what I am now. So I, I, I didn't, I actually, I, I drove my ass back up to that rehab facility and I'm like, I, I went for a few outpatient days. I, I couldn't have been more open with it. Um, I was dating a girl at the time and she I was open with her. Um, no, I, I fully embraced this one. I, I tried to do the opposite of what I did with Steve. Um, but unfortunately for me, I, I just, so that happened in um, February is when my dad committed suicide. And so that was 60 days for me at that point that, that may I, I lapsed with the smoking. And then later that summer with drinking, um, and I'm still, I'm still currently using, I'm not as bad as I used to be, but, um, it's a constant struggle. I talked to my therapist about it still, but, um, yeah, I've never, I still, both of them, I, I haven't fully gotten over either of them in, um, but I mean, no one ever will. It's, it's going to be a continuous fluid process for me. Well, I applaud your efforts. You are so freaking strong. The fact that you yourself have suffered from depression and some of the things that lead people down this path and you, you are here and you are working on it every day. And that is, Mm -hmm. that's huge. I think, well, that's the biggest message. I think it's like, there's always help available. There's always someone to call. There's always a hotline. And so whether it be yourself or somebody, you know, it's like always pick up that phone because there's always going to be somebody that's gone through what you're going through or somebody willing to talk to you about it. And so I just don't want anybody to ever get to the position that Steve or my father were in where they felt that there was no other, no hope left. Um, And so that's, yeah, it's like, I'm learning too. It's like, I still see a therapist every week. I am still practicing my coping skills. Um, But that's just part of life. You know, one thing you said earlier that, I feel like, I don't know, it just made me feel like there was something different about you is that when you had your own sort of suicidal thoughts, you immediately caught them and said, this isn't right. Instead of glorifying them or building them up or keeping them inside, you took those thoughts and went to a therapist and said them out loud, didn't you? I did. Um, yeah, no, I did. I, I was so miserable. It's just like, I, it's funny because I'm so far removed from being in that place like right now, but um, yeah, I, I, it's, I was self-aware enough to the point where I knew, I knew that I just knew that I needed something and who knows, like maybe the, the maybe Steve was an influence subconsciously on that, on me for that, like wanting to reach out when I did. Um, 
but yeah, no, I think I think being self-aware is key to mental illness because if you're not self-aware, you can't expect anybody else to know what you're feeling and thinking. Yes, yes. And, you know, what I'm also hearing from you is that connection is about the most important thing that helped you through this. Would you agree? <laughs> the, the connection with? People, community. Yeah, oh, it, exactly. It's people and communication. I mean, it's key. It's, um, yeah, so like I'm naturally kind of shy and like I got a little bit of social anxiety. So I have a tendency to kind of keep things locked up and like I'll explode at times. Um, but, you yeah, know, I'm learning, I'm learning we daily and weekly that it's like you said, communication and just being honest. Um, it's like I said, someone will always be there to be on the other end of that conversation, no matter what you're going through. You know, since you have basically been dealing with the effects of suicide for, you know, eight or nine years now. Um, do you think things have changed in, in the world of awareness, you know, accessibility to help, et cetera? I think, yeah, I, I think right now there's a lot more access to help than there was eight or nine years ago. I think it's talked about more. I think I don't even think my generation, I think the people even younger than me have a lot to do with kind of bringing it to the forefront and really um, taking that stigma. And uh, it's like the younger you are, it's like the, the younger people tend to be a lot more open to this kind of thing and talking about it. And it's funny because I don't, you're not going to change some of these older people. They're going to think how they think and maybe, maybe it'll change if they're impacted by it. Um, but I think overall, as a society in America today, we're heading in the right direction. That being said, I still don't think it's enough. Um, yeah. I don't know if it'll ever be enough, but I, I think we've come a long way since Steve in 2015. Yes. You know, I, um, I agree, but I've also often wondered, you know, younger people are more open, but at some point in their life, do they close up or can we carry this wave of openness, you know, throughout our lives. What do you think? I mean, you're, you're at an age where probably people start to put up barriers. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to tell because I'm, I, I don't think I'm, I don't fit the mold of the normal 27 year old. I'm a lot more open, uh, in terms of just talking about myself and my life. And that's part of why I did what I did when I reached out. That's kind of just my personality. I'm, I, I, I just need to, I, um, say things when I feel the need to say them. But um, yeah, I think it's a possibility. I, I, I don't know what we need to do, but I, I, like you said, I, I just think talking about it and things like this project and just keep getting the word out there is it's, it's better than nothing, you know? It is, you know, what advice or thoughts do you have for people who are suffering from mental health issues, who find themselves on the edge of those suicidal thoughts? Um, my advice, uh, the first thing would be to pick up the phone. Like I said, I, I don't, it's whether you have to call the hotline or whatever, there's always somebody to talk to. Um, but then also my advice and something that I learned in therapy and while I was at treatment is it's don't let all these external factors influence what you truly are. At the end of the day, we have our core being and what we are. And a lot of times we let all these outside influences really impact our well-being. And social media is an absolute 
toxic hellhole for that right now and like really having an impact on younger people um but just stay true to yourself remember who you are it's like whatever it is that's causing you to feel what you're feeling now it, it wasn't a part of you it's most likely an outside influence that's causing you to think something that's not normal um and i wish i could put that into words better i, I have therapists that are much better than me that explaining it but um yeah it's pick up the phone and just remember who you truly are because at the end of the day if you get back to that inner core i'm sure that that's that's not going to be like how you are feeling like that you want to kill yourself you know yeah, I think you articulated that very well. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it also hit me that the two suicides we've been talking about were fairly different cases from an external view. You know, Steve was the ultimate actor. People mm -hmm. saw him, as you mentioned, as like larger than life. Your dad had struggles and he, you could physically see it. So, you know, looking at this as somebody who, as we're trying to raise awareness or help people see warning signs so that they can help their loved ones, thinking about the two different scenarios of somebody who is acting, you know, maybe there were some warning signs or how, how would you, what advice do you give to people who might be able to help others? Um, don't always take what you see on the surface at face value there's always that extra layer and like you said steve was an actor I, I didn't know it at the time but everything he did was an effort to put this front up so nobody could see what was behind that um that wall per se um and even me as someone that was as close to him as i was for all those years when i was younger i i really wasn't aware of it i knew he had problems sleeping and whatnot but i would have never equated that to being as depressed and as he was um but yeah just don't take what you see at face value and if you think if you think something might be going on and someone kind of just yeses you to death ask another question you know what's the worst that could happen they're gonna say that they're either gonna be honest with you and tell you something's bothering them or they're gonna tell you that everything's fine but just don't don't let that don't take what you see at face value um at the surface. Just always ask that second question if you're, if you're at all unsure. Yeah, I like that. Well, and maybe, a, you know, one of our final questions here could be, what thoughts do you have for that kid or that loved one who shows up at home to two detectives on your doorstep so that you can move your life forward? Um, Man, it's uh wow i would say if if you have well, for me be there for your mother my mom was i like, had a lot to do with it so i had to be strong for my mom so my advice to anybody that has to unfortunately deal with i i dealt with um if you have another parent um just be there for them I mean, it's it's your, your parent and your siblings are the only people that are gonna have any idea of what you're going through so stay close with the people that you're close with. Don't let minute little things from your past influence those relationships, because as you could see, anything can happen from one, one day to another. And before you know it, you might not have your father anymore. So really don't let the, the little pettiness of the past um, 
influence going forward after a significant event like that because I, I kind of ran into that issue with my brother we had like a bunch of like petty little fights but then something like this happens and you're like what were we doing you know it's like there's so much more to life than these petty little arguments and there's a, such a finite amount of time on this world so my advice would be just just appreciate appreciate every moment you have with those people that you love and then unfortunately if you have to go through like something like this keep those people close to you and remember who is there for you all that time. Mike, you are an amazing, strong, very real human being. And I'm here to support you on your journey. I'm glad that you are with us, you know, with mm -hmm. these kinds of experiences, it's, it can have a terrible ripple effect. So I am so glad that you are working on all of the self growth that you have been because you might not be here if you weren't. So thank you. No, no and I, I thank you for giving me this opportunity. Like I said, this whole experience for me has been therapeutic as well. So I appreciate Is there anything else you want to share before we go? Um, no, I, I, I think I said everything I need to say. I guess I'll, I'll end it with if, if for whatever reason, if you or anybody else, if you're struggling, just pick up that phone. There's, there's always somebody that you can talk to. Yes. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing a story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. And by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 273 8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now.
Ooh.